officially made it to episode 100. Woohoo! <laughs> Adil's not impressed. <laughs> <laughs> it only took us uh, five years? <laughs> six Many years. years. <laughs> no, dude. Yeah, when did the first... 2017? Yeah, I think 2017. 2017. Yeah. yeah, so five and a half maybe. Pretty slow pace, no. but... Yeah, hopefully episode 200 is sooner than 2029. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Nat, you've been reading enough books for us to do a lot of episodes. We just got to keep up with you. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> full, so my full-time book reader now. Basically. Nat, you did about 1.5x as many of the great books as we did, right? I know you went pretty far ahead before I've, you stopped. Yeah, let's see. I've I've got a decent number of them done. I guess I only have twenty five done, so that's not that <laughs> pretty good. Still pretty good. <laughs> it's, it's it's a number. <laughs> <laughs> well, plus like all the other books you've been reading for Nat's notes, right? Yeah, exactly. So now I've got that as well. So that's full time influencer man. Yeah, full full time book influencer now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> writer slash book influencer. What's your release cadence? Like weekly. For Nat's notes. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've got all the short form videos as well. Yeah. And then aiming for one short form video a day. Wow. And then I'm going to try to layer more YouTube stuff on top of that. But I'm going to need to hire an editor because there's just no way for me to do all of that editing. It's also just not what I'm good at or best at, nor does I think it makes sense for me to put tons and tons of energy into getting better at that part of it yeah you're probably better off just actually getting like making content and then you're also still doing like one to two articles right a week yeah well the the podcast has a newsletter with it too so for people who want the like text version i've got that and so but that that kind of writes itself from the script like it's really easy to just take the script and then expand that into the newsletter so that's like not a massive extra lift, but it is, you know, extra writing it out and formatting it and loading it in and all that stuff. So are you doing all the short form stuff yourself? Like you're creating all of that yeah. yourself? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's impressive. But I, I've gotten fairly quick with that. The, the nice thing is that for, for my short form, it's not, a, it's not a crazy lift editing wise. Like, I'm not, I'm not doing tons of B-roll or additional mm. cuts or things like that. A lot of it is just cutting pauses and then adding captions and balancing the light and sound. And then it's kind of done. So the, like for me doing one short form video a day is not like an insane lift, but I, I have another friend who's really heavy on the short form stuff. His name is Callaway. If you look him up on like TikTok and stuff and his are like super edited, like really, really well done. So for him, I imagine it's like a much bigger lift on the editing side for the short form video. But are you recording one per day or are you recording in batches and then releasing one per day? I record in batches. Okay. Yeah. Uh -huh. So that, that's how I have like my whole week set up is like Tuesday is scripting day. Wednesday is recording day. Thursday is editing day. And then Monday and Friday are kind of like overflow, scheduling, planning, things like that. So like during the week, all of my YouTube shorts are just already scheduled to go out. So I like literally don't have to do anything. Some of my Instagram ones will usually be scheduled too. And so those just go out automatically. And then TikTok, I still have to open up and like hit publish from the drafts. But 
a lot of it's just like done in advance. And I've got a whole like notion board thing where I write out the scripts and the descriptions and the hashtags and stuff. So I can just kind of like copy and paste that in as I go. Pretty amazing when you zoom out. Like if, if you were 12 years old and somebody told you that one day your occupation would be to read books and (laughs) talk about them on the internet. (laughs) And that's like a viable career. I'm a fucking loser. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's a very creative act. (laughs) it's a little bit better than the uh the one i did before we hit record well done (laughs) done. yeah that was that was a plus transition (laughs) uh that's why people listen isn't it yeah so we did we were covering the creative act by rick rubin which i was initially a little skeptical about um just given how sort of mainstream it was i feel like i was when we initially thought of doing this book, I was like, ah, I don't know. But it actually was, I thought it was pretty good. And it reminded me of, you guys ever read or like seen or heard Phil Jackson talk like the basketball coach? No. Okay. So he sounds exact. Like I feel like Rick Rubin, Phil Jackson and Steve Jobs are like, they were probably like, they, I don't know if they were actually friends, but they seem to have like the exact same philosophy. (laughs) But Phil Jackson's approach to basketball okay. is basically the Rick Rubin creative act approach to like creative stuff. It's like very similar, cool. uh, very Zen, like, you know, uh, inspired. So, yeah, I think I think I either watched like a documentary or like just it was some YouTube video of Phil Jackson talking about this stuff. But it was very similar, but just with a basketball context, not creative work context, obviously. Yeah, it it's interesting because when I posted on instagram that i was reading it i got very mixed reactions from people it kind of the same thing on twitter too i feel like some people really enjoyed this book and a lot of people just really thought it was all smoke and i I kind of see where both sides are coming from because no there's definitely some criticism you can have of the book for sure yeah well I, i think that it's this funny thing where it (laughs) <laughs> it, it does kind of read like Ruben just took a bunch of mushrooms and yeah. like stream of consciousness at Neil Strauss. And then Neil had a stack of paper and was like, okay, I have to turn this into a book now. <laughs> yeah. Like that, I wouldn't even be surprised if that's kind of like what happened. And maybe Ruben doesn't need to take mushrooms. Like maybe I, he might just actually be like that all the time. He's taken enough that it's turned into that all the time, basically. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think knowing that it was ghostwritten helps. Like it gives you a better lens to see it through too, because it, it was almost definitely based on interviews. Right. And so yeah, it even feels that like way. in terms of like Neil interviewing Ruben and then like compiling that into this. And so. I think that actually helps with reading it and getting more value out of it because you can almost think of it like you're sitting on a meditation cushion in a circle or something and Ruben's just kind of like freestyling on creativity. So it, it's if you're trying to compare it to a really tactical, step-by-step, strategic guide to being a better creative, it's going to be very disappointing. But... If you're reading it through the lens of like, oh, this is kind of an insight into how somebody like this thinks, then I think it gets more valuable. 
So that's the mindset that I definitely went into it with was this is a mindset book, not a tactical book. But there actually are surprisingly Mm -hmm. some tactical things in there which are kind of useful, like the idea of like changing the changing your environment or like if you always I think they were talking about I forget which musician. I don't think they mentioned the musician, but it was like if you always write stuff down before, you know, recording, try not writing it down and just record like there were some interesting tactical things, too. But yeah, I don't think it's. You can't go into it thinking this is a tactical book. It's definitely more of like get your mind right kind of book. Yeah, yeah. It reads almost like a like religious text. It's like very short. Yeah. You can't really read like five or ten chapters at a time. You have to read yeah. like one or two, kind of digest it a little bit. Even though it's like a very quick read, it's actually a very slow read. And then come back and like pick up the next couple. And then there, there's some redundancy as well. Like I found a lot of the chapters were like 70% the same. And then there'd be like a 30% difference. And I was like, okay, now I understand why these are two ideas instead of one. I would almost say it's like, it's actually a very tactical book. It's just not like a strategy. It's not like a whole mm. recipe for things. It's just like a hundred tactics. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I also think this would have been a great book to read like early in your career, I think, like if for mm-hmm. a young person. Like for example, some of the one of the things that stood out very early in the book was they mentioned or he mentioned that the act of taking something from your imagination into the real world makes it always feel smaller and like not what you init- you know originally were thinking of. And I think as a like I've had that experience even early on even just trying to write like a blog post. It's like you have this idea in your head, start putting words on the page and you're like this is not this is not what I was imagining. Like this sucks. And it you know that that is what the creative process is though and then it's you're iterating on that and trying to make it better but it's never going to match up perfectly with what's in your mind and you know it was nice to see that in like the early chapter it's like if i had read that at age 20 it would be probably pretty impactful to know that somebody even of rick rubin's caliber is like still struggles with that or still thinks about that because i always would at least early in my career i thought it was like i just suck right it's like i'm just yeah. not good at this yeah you always feel like you're as good as the latest thing you've produced. But what, I, what I've enjoyed is, and he actually mentions this in the book, is like everything is just a snapshot of you at the time. So you have to actually mm-hmm. let it go in order to like move past that snapshot and then release yep. the next thing. I, I mean, I would not classify myself as particularly a, a creative, but I, I got a lot out of this just for things I do in my day to day. It basically is a, it's a growth story. It's not... It's growth in creativity in this case, but I think you could apply it quite broadly. Like, I wonder for the folks who read it and they have like mixed reactions to it. What's the? Do you guys remember like a synthesis of folks who found it less interesting? Like it was, one of you said it was too smoky. Let me try to find this one Instagram message I got because I thought it was really entertaining. <laughs> I bet you probably get really interesting Instagram messages when you post about these books because like. I get People more of such strong now. opinions. Yeah. yeah. Definitely strong opinions. Let's see. Which platform has the most unhinged messages? Is it TikTok? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. <laughs> I always um, think it's TikTok just from your one example of the uh, countdown, I think, was the book. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, the, the comments can be can be pretty unhinged on both. <laughs> on both. Um, okay. <laughs> I mean, you're just you're just gonna get odd people commenting on things. Right, one of my favorite ones was somebody who com- and like sometimes 
sometimes when people get super you know upset about something it's like oh, okay i can sort of understand maybe the worldview that you have and where this belief could come from but somebody commented on one video and was like oh god steinbeck east of eden one of the most disgusting books ever written what? and i was just like <laughs> that one makes no sense there's there's no i i can't even come close to trying to justify that belief <laughs> most disgusting <laughs> I guess if you'd only read one book, then <laughs> if that's the only book you've ever read, then by definition, it's the most disgusting book you've read. But... And also the best book you've ever read at the same time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. Okay, so... This <laughs> is just so funny. And I, I appreciated this guy sending it to you. I'm not making fun of him. I, I, I actually thought this was an interesting uh, perspective. He said... I found it incredibly surface level, vapid, and simplistic. I'm a creative professional who came into the book with a high amount of respect for Rick. The book made me question if his creative choices were the result of dumb luck. I loved this Goodreads review. (laughs) Clouds make water. Pear trees make pears. (laughs) And Rick Rubin makes lukewarm, watered-down parallels between Buddhism, basic psychoanalysis, and the creative process. (laughs) I can actually see that. (laughs) (laughs) And then, have you guys seen the meme that's like how to draw an owl? (laughs) 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 Do you know this one deal? I know a deal does. No, I don't. I don't. I'm going to look it up. Oh, my God. Okay. Anybody listening should look it up. Yeah. It's how to draw an owl. And it's like you draw a circle for the head and then you draw uh, a kind of cone for the oh, body. I see it. Yeah. And, and then you draw the rest of the fucking owl. <laughs> <laughs> like step one, step two. <laughs> that's what he was saying. That's how this book felt. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know what he actually might be really good at is just like talent spotting and like mm. working with the right people. And yeah. I, was well, actually- I also think like it, it, to 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 be slightly generous to this guy's point, like I do think that is maybe a lot of what creativity is is like, or or his job is anyway is talent spotting and then helping people get out of their own way. And so, on the one hand, a line like you know he, he has one section about mixing it up. If you get stuck in the process, mix it up. And if you always write on a laptop, try writing on a yellow legal pad. Right. Yep. And. On the one hand, that might seem kind of vapid and simplistic or whatever. But on the other hand, those little things might actually be what, you know, unlocks Jay-Z when he's stuck on something, right? Totally. Being able to, you know, and, but switching from a laptop to a legal pad won't make you an incredible musician. It might just unblock you, assuming you're already great. Right. And so that that's kind of maybe the distinction there is if you were hoping that this book could make you really good, then it probably can't, but it might be able to help, you know, unstick whatever bits of greatness you already have in you. Yeah. Was it, I feel like Nat, you wrote an article about this at some point about being like, it's really like the steps you would take to go from like, you know, 80 percentile or not 80 percentile, I guess like top 20% to like top point one percent are like very different and the time it takes to get to top 
20% is probably, you know, you can do that relatively quickly, but getting to that 0.1% is like, that's like the long, you know, lifetime battle basically. Oh yeah. I think it was something about how like Pareto optimization is not actually optimal yeah. or whatever. Right. Yeah. Cause like if you're, if you're in the top 20%, you're also kind of in the like bottom 10% or something. Right. Like in the, in the sense that like, it's so easy to get there and it's so unimpressive like within that domain, like it's impressive out of the domain, but within the domain, you still have like so much further to go. I feel like this book is not meant to get you in the top 20%. It's like, if you're already in that, you know, top 1% to get to the 0.1%, you know, it's like, it's like more of like, uh, but I also think at the same time, and this is where I was, what I was saying earlier is like, there are some things in here, which are, like if you you know you can probably self discover them over a few years like the whole idea of you know when you put something on paper it's going to be uglier than what it was in your mind that's something which like somebody might quit thinking that they just suck at writing or that they suck at music or yeah. they suck at whatever without knowing that that's the case i'm sure rick rubin's not the only person to talk about that but i i did think like that would be helpful if someone who was like 20 or 21 reading this book they would be like oh okay i guess even the best struggle with this. So it's not, you know, I'm not the only one. Yeah. It, that, that part's definitely kind of affirming of just like seeing how common a lot of those challenges are. Yeah. I also wish he talked more about actual stories of like people that he worked with. Like I thought there was some, I know, that, I th- but yeah, yeah I thought that, that was much. like oddly missing. Yeah. Maybe he can't. I wonder I why know. maybe. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. There might be like a permission thing or he didn't want to burn any bridges I don't know. Didn't want to make any of these people seem more human. <laughs> yeah. It would just be a very different book. I did a, I did a yeah. bit of reading about it. I actually knew almost nothing about Rick Rubin going into this. I just saw some like tweets about the book. I just yeah, saw I his name next to James a few times. But I didn't know this until after. He actually worked with Johnny Cash in the last like decade or so of Johnny Cash's life. That's cool. Hmm. Pretty neat. He saw Cash perform. And then they released, you know, those like slightly darker, just Johnny Cash with a bare guitar kind of albums that he released towards the end. Like I think Hurt, The Man Comes Around, Did either of those ring a bell? I, mean, I haven't listened to much Johnny Cash. So. Oh, really? Oh, well, you got to fix that first of all. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I was pretty cool to see that because you always think of Johnny Cash as like a very much a previous generation kind of artist. Whereas you think of Jay Z's very contemporary and Rick Rubin yeah. worked with both, right? He's also worked with like Adele, Metallica, Kanye West, very long career, Beastie yeah. Boys. What got like? What's his biography like? That obviously wasn't covered. Like, how did he get into into this? Because he wasn't like a musician himself. I'm looking it up on Wikipedia right now. But That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, what yeah. A, what a career. He's also only sixty. So to have worked with that range wow. of artists is like pretty impressive he started working with johnny cash when he was 30 it's pretty wild yeah that's a good question are you finding anything neil like how do you end up as a music producer without being a musician first maybe that's a dumb question i don't know anything about the industry so so he was a music so so he founded def jam while at nyu which is kind of cool it's probably a whole story there while he was a student at nyu and he had a band. So I think it's not that like he didn't have any music experience. 
Like his band was called Hose and that was Def Jam's first release. So basically he probably like had a band, was trying to, you know, find a record label, couldn't find one and was like, it's kind of like self-publishing. It's just like, why don't I just start a record label? (laughs) (laughs) That seems to be what happened because that was Def Jam's first release. Then it said the band played in and around the NYC punk scene toward the Midwest and California. So it's not, it wasn't like nothing, you know? Yeah. And then it says the band broke up in 1984, which was two years after it was their mm-hmm. album was released because Rick Rubin's passion moved towards the New York City hip hop scene. Mm-hmm. So I guess he kind of like was over rock, like punk rock and was like moving on to hip hop. And then he was like, I don't really want to do the band thing anymore. So it looks like he just started making friends with a lot of different hip hop artists like who were and it wasn't really like a mainstream genre. So these people were probably pretty accessible. Is that also kind of similar to how Kanye got started? Like he started as a producer. Yeah, he he was originally a producer, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But that was a little bit different because it looks like Rick Rubin was kind of befriending hip hop people with the idea that he thinks it can become more popular, like mainstream. Mm. Like it was basically like they were like hip hop was a sort of small genre in the early 80s. And he was like, well, this is I think this has a lot more potential than what it is. And I own a record label, so I'm going to help promote this. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, then it looks like he became friends with Russell Simmons at a club through this rapper that he met. And like, yeah, just kind of like grew from there, it looks like. And then obviously he got some really good artists or help popularize really good artists like LL Cool J, Public Enemy, Run DMC. So it was like all like those 80s hip hop artists were all Def Jam, which is kind of crazy. Sweet. That was like, so he kind of pioneered the genre. So it makes, well, pioneered is like, I mean, he, he backed the artists that pioneered the genre. It's almost like a VC. So talent spotting might be the, you know, trend and talent spotting might be like his superpower. You kind of create the space, grow the space, and then you weren't, it's not like breaking into a monolith, which is very different. Yeah. You kind of identify the thing that is not as big yet and then grow with it as you grow. It is kind of amazing because like hip hop culture is kind of like American culture at this point. Hmm. Not like entirely, but I think it's like a big cultural export, I would say. And it's amazing that like, I don't know, 40 years ago, that was 35 years ago. That was not the case. But I guess that is also a long time. That's like a whole generation, more than a generation. So, yeah. But man, yeah, I'm looking at like just his Wikipedia page is pretty amazing. And then I see the Johnny Cash stuff as well, a deal. That's it. That that was in like the early 90s. Yeah, it says they met in 93. Yep. Always been a big Cash fan. Though I will say, have you guys seen the Joaquin Phoenix Johnny Cash movie? No, is it I good? Not. I mean, it has Joaquin Phoenix, so it's <laughs> yeah, probably good. It's pretty good. <laughs> I mean, it's a musician's biopic, right? So there's a there's some stuff that's a little corny, but I, I think it's worth watching. What's amazing about it, though, is Joaquin Phoenix sings, and some songs he does better than Cash. So it's pretty cool really? wow. that. Yeah. yeah. Really? Yeah. He's that good of a singer? He's really good. <laughs> He's impressive. Yeah. Did you guys make a list of any like standout 
I don't know, tactics, lessons, thoughts from the book. Yeah, I'm looking at my notes. 200 total. Well, I have a list of 17, actually, uh, (laughs) that I use for my short-form videos and YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) You just rebrand made you think to uh, Nat's Notes with Tangents. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Our notes. (laughs) Let's see. Okay, there's one that I particularly like, which was this idea. I think you mentioned it, a deal about like, keeping the scope smaller, like not, not imagining it has to like define you forever, but recognizing that it's just like a moment in time because he says two things that might seem kind of contradictory, but actually like go together. So I'm just pulling up the rest of my notes here. On the one hand, he's basically saying like, take your time on it because you know, if you just rush and try to like let your inspiration like do all the work for you, then it won't be good. Like you, you have to focus and, and follow through on it. Uh, but then, at on the other hand, like you do kind of want to get through it quickly so that you capture yourself at that point in time. Because if you spend too long, then you start becoming like a different person, and the work gets muddled because it's no longer like representing you at that period and so that idea of yeah here's the line we tend to think that what we're making is the most important thing in our lives and that it's going to define us for all eternity consider moving forward with the more accurate point of view that it's a small work a beginning the mission is to complete the project so you can move on to the next i feel like that framing of like each one needs to be good but it also needs to get done so you can move on to the next like phase of your life is a good way to frame it. Cause yeah, I, I like, I think, I think about somebody like uh, George R. Martin, right? It's he spent what 16 years on the last game of Thrones book, <laughs> right? Like that's, you know, what would be hilarious. It's probably just too long. Yeah. He started it. He's just fucking around. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I feel like at this point he has to wait a few extra years because HBO shat the bed so badly. Mm. He needs everyone to forget about it. He needs everyone to forget so that he can be like, all right, here's how it actually ends. Right. <laughs> or, uh, I mean, Patrick Rothfuss is this way too. He spent like nine or 10 years on the final King Killer book. And I feel like everyone's just like pissed with him now. <laughs> well, George R.R. George R. Martin's been doing a lot of other projects yeah that time too yeah. i know you guys don't play video games but so this is a silly question but george r, r. martin actually helped write a video game called elden ring oh wow hmm. it's it's literally the best game i've ever played by like, a decent margin praise. it's wow. incredible what's it what's um, it about like i mean it's a, a story there's a story yeah yeah it's a fantasy RPG, you know, like free roam exploration, you know, level up a character, fight enemies, fight bosses, um, you know, swords and magic and all that stuff. But it's it's by this Japanese game producer called From Software. Hmm. And they're before Elden Ring, they were famous for their like Dark Souls trilogy. And all of their games are like famously challenging 
like if you look at you know the the list of the top 10 hardest video games like they're pretty much always on that list because uh, they're super challenging so it's it's a very hard game and it has this like really really and it has really incredible gameplay and it has this super interesting rich like world and very strange storytelling style like it's just super cool and i I didn't realize george r R. martin like helped write all of the story and everything for the game until i got like part of the way into it it's like ah okay this makes sense so yeah and i think he like wrote a a prequel in the middle there right like he's done a bunch of other stuff instead of he's produced he produced actually this pretty good show called i think it's called dark winds Hmm. it's like kind of like a fantasy type it's like there is a supernatural element to it. Um, I think it was on AMC and I think season two is coming out soon, but there's only been one season I think so far. And it's about like these people on it, on the Navajo reservation, but it's like, it like brings in a lot of elements of their like mythology in it too. But he, he produced it. It's kind of wild. Cool. Another project that he's worked on. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting. Like, I think this is interesting for in general people who do series like that, right? Like how do you keep that energy on something for because you just have to be that kind of person, right? But especially for TV because you don't know if it's going to continue, right? You don't know oh, yeah. like how many seasons you get to tell the story. So it's probably really hard mm. to do it that way. Like in some like some shows I feel like end perfectly. Like I think Breaking Bad they didn't keep going with the story and they ended it perfectly. And then other shows just go like too long, but they can because they have good viewership and then they, you know, they probably get pressure to keep going. Yeah. Well, I I was talking about people who write these long, I was gonna say people who write these long book series. Cause yeah, I'm looking at it now. George R. R. Martin, he started the first game of Thrones book in 1991. Wow. So he spent so when 16 I was, yeah. of those years on one book. Uh, I guess 12. I was 12, wrong. Okay. The last one came out in 2011. <laughs> yeah, so um, the last one came out when you guys were like graduating high school. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. I mean, and he's, got, he's got one that's forthcoming. And then he has another one planned after that. But like, I'm sorry, dude, you're 74. At this pace, <laughs> you're not going to finish. Like. <laughs> Get to work. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that, that's really impressive, right? That you could keep working on this one series through your whole life. Especially when you consider that somebody will probably read them all back to back. Yeah. Right. I mean, mm. I would imagine somebody who writes these series, I, I think it was Tolkien or somebody, somebody who has written, it's either Tolkien or J.K. Rowling, said like to them the characters become real when you're writing these series like yeah. they're not just like fantasy characters they're like real people basically yeah wasn't so it's Isaac probably Asimov like a little different wrote, yeah. wasn't it Isaac Asimov who wrote like a f- few of the foundation books came back like many years later and wrote a couple more like yeah didn't it, it was like a 50 year break or something wasn't it yeah. oh wow it was something very long i don't know if it was 50 but like it was a crazy long time. Beginning and end of his career. Yeah, let's see. Uh, yeah, 50 years. Wow. He, the first ones came out in 1942 to 1950. And then 
And then, nine, yeah, so 42 was the first one. 42 to 50. And then, okay, a 30-year break. And then 1982, 86, and up to 93. Mm. So, yeah, like a 30-odd-year break and then picked it back up. That's wild. But first one to last one was about 50 years. For the for like the chapter or quote that you read, how often does someone know before release that what they're creating is their like magnum opus? Because I think yeah. about I think about like Tarantino originally wrote Inglorious Bastards so that he would be the uh, whatever. Yeah, he he would be uh, Brad Pitt's character, right? Yep. This way, the last line would be his, which was I believe I think this is my masterpiece. Where he yeah. looks at the camera, like. <laughs> That was a great movie in the end. It would have been embarrassing to say that line if it was a total myth. Yeah. Um, it's also like Brad Pitt's <laughs> definitely a better actor than Tarantino. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, yeah, well, that, that's an interesting question too, Adil. Like, do you get, have you guys read the Red Rising trilogy? No. No, uh, no I have it on my list. Highly though. recommend it. Looks, looks good. Yeah. It's yeah. really fun. And... That, that's another interesting one because so the guy who wrote it, Pierce Brown, he's interesting. I think he was like working as an accountant or a lawyer or something and then decided he wanted to go all in and on fiction writing and like quit his job and moved into his parents' garage attic and just like banged out the first Red Rising book. And he wrote the first trilogy in three years. Just bam, bam, bam. And then left it for like, I want to say four or five years. And in that time, it got like crazy popular. And so I think like the fan base got so big and so strong that it like pulled him back in to do a second trilogy. Like it, I didn't, because the the third book ends, like it, it's a totally, it's a great wrap up. Like the, it could have just been the original trilogy. And so... Maybe he was always planning to come back to it, but like it didn't feel that way. And then, like to your point, you know, how, do you know if it's your magnum opus, right? Like, I'm sure he didn't expect that it would become this like sensation that it has. And now for this sixth book that just came out last week, there's literally like he's doing like sold out stadium tours, wow. like people coming for signings and speakings and things. Like his Instagram is wild just the size of the, of how many people are showing up for this. Like it's pretty cool. Um, the, is the second trilogy as good? Does it live up? I haven't started it yet. Okay. So I'm not sure. I was waiting until this one came out before I picked up the second trilogy. Cause like, I don't know. I, I like being able to read stuff just quickly and, and not have to wait for another yeah. book. It makes me happy that there's a book release where there's like stadiums filling up. Cause I always yeah, right? only remember the Harry Potter book releases when we were kids you go to like the Barnes and Noble, you wait till midnight. Like, man, those were, those are crazy. Yeah. Now yeah, you just get if- that for iPhones. You don't even get that for iPhones anymore. No one lines up for anything except Supreme. No. I wonder if they're all, uh, yeah, I guess I don't think anyone's going to line up for the vision pro. Are they? It's like not cool enough yet. It's not cheap enough. <laughs> yeah, it's not cheap enough. <laughs> <laughs> no one who's buying the vision pro stands in line. <laughs> although, although I mean the first iPhone was, eight hundred dollars when it came out which yeah. adjusted infl- for inflation inflation adjusted is like four thousand dollars now so. <laughs> yeah i 
wonder when we'll have a well act, oh wait, wait. <laughs> yeah, it, this, this tangent doesn't even make sense but I say we <laughs> do any of our tangents like, ever I, make sense I, I, can't, I can't i can't come anywhere close to defending this one i was gonna say we have to talk about the floating rock at some point <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what we need to get get good uh, VR tech. <laughs> LK ninety nine. It's gonna save save us. What's the latest on that? I I was following Dude, the the prediction markets have flipped. Now they're saying it's more likely than not that it's gonna replicate. Wow. wow. Yeah, because the the video of that test at the what national science lab or something came out where like they resynthesized it based on the paper and put it over an electromagnet and it's just floating. Like they have it on video. You can find it on Twitter. Wow. It's fucking cool. That's cool. Yeah. It was weird. Cause they like released that first thing. And then it seems like they like threw their phones in the ocean and the whole internet got to speculate on it for a week. It's like, mm-hmm. dude, you really invented this crazy thing. I feel like within a few hours you would have defended yourself. <laughs> it- I think it's interesting to that, like, I feel like people outside of techie Twitter don't know anything about it or like haven't heard about it. Is it on the news? Like, are people talking about it? I only see about I it on no Twitter. Idea. Also, we should we should respect the rebrand. I only see it on X. <laughs> oh, You're sorry, like, I don't want to hear the word Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I'm like... <laughs> Someone paid forty billion dollars for me to use the word X. I will respect. Oh my it. god! Oh. It's so funny. Yeah, I feel like oh, oh, so. This is actually an interesting connection to the the like not to the book, but to Rick Rubin's life. So I was reading his Wikipedia page just now, and apparently he's hugely inspired by wrestling, like WWE, and it makes total sense because I feel like a lot of the Def Jam artists do stuff like that, like. They'll have like scandals or they'll like say ridiculous things in public and almost try to be like the villain. I actually feel like weirdly the world is becoming like WWE. Like I thought it was so stupid when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. I didn't really like WWE. I was like, that's fake. But now I'm like, that is basically like Elon Musk is a WWE character, basically. (laughs) Like Mm. the moves that he makes. Have you read Eric Weinstein's article on kayfabe? Mm-mm. Oh, this is a, this is like a great a great word to have in your head. Uh, so he, I don't think he coined the term. It, it the term kayfabe means like something where everybody knows it's fake, but uh, we mutually agree to play along and to enjoy it anyway. Hmm. And his his argument in the article is that yeah, a lot of the world is like pro wrestling now, right? Where we all know that like the like the, the democratic nominations are sort of like mostly fake, right? Like the DNC is gonna put in whichever candidate they want. And we've sort of like seen enough stuff with that to know that like it's sort of a a sham, right? And the the RNC was that way too until sort of like Trump came and messed it up, right? Um, and then like a lot of news stuff we know is kind of kayfabe now because they have these like talking points that are suspiciously similar across major networks. And it's like, okay, you know, there's like, this isn't exactly like purely sharing the news anymore. There's like some degree of like what mutually agreed upon message spreading. Right. 
it's because uh, it's entertainment as like well. there, there's just yeah exactly because it's, it's more entertainment right it's not in in the wrestling example like everyone was fine with it because it's just entertainment right like we're not at, we don't actually think these people are fighting right and like a lot of news is and, that way now too it's like oh I, i'm not actually trying to be informed i just want to like be entertained and have my existing beliefs supported and I actually think the best, like the best, the best doesn't mean like the best in terms of like best people, but just best like at playing the modern news, I guess, cycle or, or style. They know exactly what, like what they're doing. Like I feel like Musk like leans in to being this person, yeah. right? And and Trump even to an oh, extent. Oh yeah, now, Trump. I don't know if Trump is leaning Tr- Trump in. Trump and Musk him. are the two. <clears throat> yeah. I, I, Kanye, I mean, they're definitely I actually the think two Kanye as well. Public figures. I think Kanye Kanye is similar Kanye. as well. Yeah. Did, did you read 50th Law? I read 50th did Law. Did we talk like about 50th Law? Ago. Did we do We haven't done it. it? We might. No, we haven't. We haven't. Okay. We haven't. Yeah. Hey, I just remember there was a whole chapter in there about this idea about how 50 Cent was actually like a pretty like calm, normal dude, um, at least as a professional, but he would stage these like violent outbursts and tantrums and things like that because he knew it would get press attention before his albums came out. And so I, I think the, I remember the story he told was like, he faked a fight with his manager where he threw a TV out a window of like a fifth floor apartment or something. And, but they like, they cleared the street and everything below it beforehand, like made sure that it was totally safe and like did all this stuff. But then, you know, they had some reporters staged to like take photos of it and whatnot. So then there are all these headlines about how like, 50 Cent had this massive violent altercation with his manager over his new album coming out, blah, blah, blah. Right. And like helped the album blow up. It's like, ah, okay. Like (laughs) this is a, this is a good, good insight. Or did did you guys read Ryan Holiday's first book? Trust me, I'm lying. Yeah. It's a great book. Great. That's actually, in my opinion, in my opinion, it's the best book. It's actually the best book. Yeah. It's really good. It's (laughs) just so interesting. It's all about this. It's like, oh yeah. How do you like plant a story in mainstream news media? That was like um, the Tucker Max like uh, sponsoring yeah. uh, Planned Parenthood. Did you exactly? Yeah. <laughs> Did you well, know the, about this? I, I didn't know about this. Oh, it was just like so well, th- yeah. Basically, like Ryan was Tucker Max's like I think marketing partner. Yeah, something, unconventional something like PR that. agent, basically. <laughs> yeah, and Tucker Max was like, oh, I've uh, so many girls have had like abortions because of me that they should name a Planned Parenthood after me, oh, and. God. And, and so then to like promote the book, book launches, they tried. They didn't actually get it, which yeah, is even better because they didn't even have to spend any money. But like the he- there were like all these headlines of like Tucker Max trying to have a Planned Parenthood named after him. Like it was like they turned, they created like this almost like trying to get him canceled kind of thing. But like it was free marketing essentially is the way they viewed it. Like people would buy the book because they've heard of his name. <laughs> I think the best dangerous, uh, positive feedback loops between like the media because they benefit the yeah. folks who are seeking to get their name in the news and then mm-hmm. everyone who's reading it because like I am entertained when I read about you know Zuckerberg and Musk wanting to literally fight. yes yeah. even though I know <laughs> even though I know it like diminishes the overall discourse I'm like well, I'm yeah. so gonna click on that link and find out if it happened in the Coliseum. That's a lot of what the book is about. It was just like the the media's incentives are no longer to like get things right. They're to get clicks. Yep. And uh, the the other funny thing that like the way, one of the ways he promoted the book was he got like half a dozen fake stories planted in the New York Mm. Times. So 
he went on like journalist request for source sites like Harrow and stuff. Yep. And just pretended to be an expert in random things and then gave these long interviews to reporters. And then so within like the span of a week or, or two, there were like a, at least six, I think, stories that was like, according to like historical records expert, Ryan Holiday, like according to, I don't know, urban gardening expert, right? right? Like they just, they did no fact checking, no source checking, nothing. They just you know, they wanted somebody to support what they were saying and they ran it. Uh, and then the funny consequence of that was like none of his subsequent books, uh, like at least for Obstacle is the Way and a couple others, none of them got put on the New York Times bestseller list, even though they qualified Because for they it. don't, they're mad at Because <laughs> they were just so like embarrassed. <laughs> yeah. Have you guys ever seen uh, Nightcrawler? The like Jake Gyllenhaal movie, oh, yeah. So it's kind good. of about oh kind of gosh. about the same thing, right? Like how desperate the media is yeah. for ratings, and they'll basically put anything on, you know, even like yep. dead bodies and stuff, like before the families have even been notified, yeah. because it'll be sensational. That's why I get my news from TikTok, like a true educated dude. Student. That's exactly <laughs> there. You go. <laughs> Or from X. I just let China decide Happy what I do. think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's China or Elon Musk. Those are your two choices. As long as you're on the good algorithm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that is kind of why this like this RFK stuff is interesting. Just because he seems like he's kind of using the Trump playbook on the DNC. Like he's trying. I don't know if he'll yeah, he's trying. I don't know if he'll pull it off. But I don't think he's interesting. gonna pull it off. <laughs> well, it's not just a Trump playbook. There is some element of charisma involved and he's not very, he's not very charismatic. he's not as charismatic yeah he doesn't have he doesn't have that i don't think uh he didn't yeah. have the name brand going into it too you know? yeah he's just a kennedy <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> no i actually think if he was more charismatic he could he could have the name brand just having like the name and stuff like yeah he doesn't Especially because the Kennedy is like known for that, right? Like the charisma and like I, I think the, it's like I, I think the Kennedy name actually hurts him. Yeah, because you just see him and that like, it's like it's not JFK. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you associate it with like the old guard, right? Like, um, who's although the... I I don't know. I view like if there was like a JFK type that you could legitimately think of as JFK, I would actually view that as a positive because of all the. I don't know. I feel like we were more very ambitious country during that era. You would have to embody it. Like you'd have that's to have what I mean. Vitality yeah. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. That's what I mean. Yep. That, yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't so have, you have that to embody what people think of it. Cause I, as I said that I was like, exactly. I know nothing about JFK. I've just seen like four photos of him. Dude, we should do a, we should do a JFK episode. I don't know enough either. I feel like there's probably a good biography. <laughs> <laughs> what is it, Nat? Nat's probably already done a book on JFK. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm laughing because I'm like, okay, who's the who's the modern day like Marilyn Monroe that there would have to be rumors about the presidential candidate hooking up with for them to <laughs> embody that energy? I don't know if there's anybody. Is it at Kim that Kardashian? Like, maybe, maybe it would be Kim Kardashian. So it's Kanye. <laughs> it's Kanye. <laughs> or uh, who's the who's the comedian Pete Davidson? <laughs> Uh, at least would make debates entertaining i mean yeah can you imagine if the if the dnc like 
I don't think Kanye would be part of the DNC, but if like the DNC debates were like Bernie Sanders, RFK Jr., Kanye West, Pete Davidson, Hillary Clinton, <laughs> Pete Davidson, like you just have like a mix of like actual politicians with like, oh my God, you know, Joe Biden has to be in there for irrelevant comments, <laughs> basically. <laughs> I would pay, I would do pay per view for that if they charge oh, money. Like, yeah, I would. I would pay for that. <laughs> yeah. In, in, instead, we're going to have a presidential election where one candidate's in jail and the other one's in the hospital. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. I'm thinking about America. Will and his upcoming AI transcript and summary of this episode. We should actually. <laughs> we should. We should start scoring the episodes by like percentage time spent in tangents and then sort them on the website in that order. Just or and also see how they do on performance. See how the performance goes. Like does it does tangents correlate with more listens or less listens? (laughs) I mean, this is the problem with us not recording for like a month, is that (laughs) we just have too much like random stuff to catch up on. We can't focus. Every now and then I'm like opening up the book and I'm like, is there, a, is there an anchor I can, I can try and like <laughs> pull us back to? <laughs> I mean, to be fair, there also was less to talk about with this book than, you know, like the uh, river of doubt or something like that. Mm. You know, I feel like that book had a yeah. lot, like some books are just like very dense and this book was like both dense, but not dense. So We've talked about the book enough. We can stick to tangents now. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, Nat, actually, to your point about the jail versus hospital thing. Like, I was talking to somebody the other day. (laughs) I think this is actually, like, a huge sign of strength for America. It's just, like, how resilient this country is that, like, it doesn't matter who is president. We can survive. A rudderless ship. (laughs) Yeah, we can, like, we're not just survive, like, thrive. I mean, I I wouldn't say we're thriving to the level we can be thriving at, but, like, it hasn't sunk. Like, we're doing okay. I mean, we've we've had a criminal in charge. We've had a criminal. We've had a a vegetable in charge. (laughs) Should we just elect a child next? Yeah, (laughs) why not? (laughs) (laughs) you actually could like this would be a fun this is like a fun experiment this would never happen but like i wonder if it was like a draft like somebody was drafted president like it was just that's how it used to work in um that was like an ancient greece thing or ancient rome thing because like Gosh, I don't remember. I think this was like Athens for some period. Like it was, it was a democracy, but they needed a like, you know, a quote unquote president type figure to make like day to day decisions for the the city. Hmm. And so they would just elect, they would just like pick somebody from the populace to do it for like a few months at a time. And then they would go back to work. And so the idea was that like, basically anybody should be able to like you know, any male landowner right should be able to like step into that role for a period there's something like kind of nice about that right like you definitely want a certain degree of quality and i guess they'd be chosen by like the the rest of the population but and i think you like couldn't do it for too long right like it was it was it was meant to sort of cycle continuously somebody somebody should fact check that this is like i'm pulling this deep out of 
some <laughs> history book here. It's probably like only 70% accurate if that, but something like that is true. Something like that is true. (laughs) (laughs) That should be like how one of those big stories, you know, (laughs) there should be like a movie that ends like it's like based on a true story, but it doesn't say that at the beginning. But at the end, they're like something like that is true. Yeah, exactly. Oh, man. You know, this is why I can't run for president because presidential <laughs> candidates just get on podcasts and say nonsense, and <laughs> everyone else. Maybe we should like elect a podcast. Oh, yes, <laughs> there we go. Rogan for president. <laughs> Joe, Joe like- Rogan and Elon Musk. <laughs> I do wonder how how to discuss America as the ship that simply won't sink. I do wonder how long that can go. It feels like we're getting a bit of a lucky break with China and demographics, right? Yeah. Uh, But it does scare me. It's like, yeah, I can't go forever. And I think it's become a question sort of like what happens after you die, where it's Mm -hmm. too big to really answer. So people don't think about it. And then you just get jokes. Yeah. I do sincerely worry about it sometimes. I'm like, man, I like it here. Like, I I would hate to see this burn. Totally. I don't know. Like the... Last night I saw some folks and they had the Trump indictment on TV and it was like one of the ones that like his fifth indictment. Uh, it was just non news. It's like, it's, I don't know. It felt yeah, like I watching news know. in like some failed state. You're like, okay. Yeah. 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 Like it should be a very pressing concern, but I think you're both on one hand jaded by Trump. And on the other hand, you're jaded by like Trump's accusers. So you're like, well, whatever will be, will be right. Like, which uh, is kind of a third world attitude. It's a very it. third world. Yeah, it's a very yeah. third world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I like think you just yeah, assume it, it, the politicians it, are criminals, basically. In like, yeah. 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 And I think because we're in like a pre violence, like pre political violence, and I would say people would probably disagree with that as well. Like, uh, but I think we're pre widespread, widespread political violence. It feels kind of funny, but I don't know. It's not funny. I do think though, about like, it from time to time. Real, yeah. I, I, I do think about it. It is yeah. it is kind of interesting though. Like the this this sounds bad, but it's uh, like this sounds very like anti crypto, but it's not. It's basically like the U.S. has built the dollar into such a weapon that it's actually such a strong strategic advantage. Like every time I go overseas, I, especially to like a country, like I went to India earlier earlier this year, and then like obviously it was just in Africa. Like how much they value dollars is just mm-hmm. mind boggling. It's like we take it so for granted. Like the exchange rate in uh, Kenya from shillings to dollars, I think officially is like 138 or 140 or something to a dollar. But people will give you like 150, 155 because they just Hmm. want to hold dollars because their currency has gone from like 100 shillings a dollar to like 140 Hmm. in like a matter of like a year and a half, two years. So it's just like they would just so much rather hold dollars. If you tip someone with a $1 bill, they're like so, so happy. so it's just like, I don't know, it's like we've built this, like the dollar is such a weapon. You almost wonder, does the rest of the world have to fall apart first before, like like the US is almost like, can just absorb so much just because of the, we have the dollar. I think yeah. you feel that more when you leave the US, but if for you're- For sure, that's what I mean, yeah. If you're, yeah. If you're like only when in you're the here, US, you take you're it for so for granted. By, but you can take it for granted here, but as long as you're not getting inflated away, which like, the three of us are not, but- 
a lot of people no but are, even so if you are I, getting I inflated away yeah. even if you are getting inflated away here the pace of that inflated away is so much better than in other countries like i mean you go to yeah. kenya it's like people pay the same amount for fuel as they pay here but the average income is like three thousand dollars a year yeah it's no my point like, is how like, is that it doesn't even that the the feasible. pace the difference in pace doesn't matter because if i go and i can't buy eggs i don't care that no, it's for sure expensive you know no that's for uh, sure yeah that's going to be the metric that decides whether or not there is internal violence here. It's not going to be the price of eggs in Kenya. Uh, yeah, no. Well, I'm saying like I don't see us hitting like 40% inflation until the rest of the world is basically collapsed is kind of where I'm, I was going with hmm. it. Like, hmm. like we can just absorb so much more because of that. Like basically like people keep buying our debt. And as long as they keep yeah. buying our debt, you can keep punting the problem into the future as long as, yeah. as, long as people buy our debt. That's basically all that matters. And because people want dollars so bad, they keep buying our debt because they want dollars. And that's basically all that. Like, that's basically what keeps the ship afloat. <laughs> as long as that exists, we're like good to go. If that ever stops, if that illusion or that, you know, the Ferris wheel stops or something like, you know, the music stops where that's, that's it. Because we don't take in nearly enough revenue to do any of the stuff that we do. As a government, that's something like, I would love take to in read. Such a small percentage. I would love to read like a non-ideological book on this, like even like a reasonably technical book. Cause I don't really understand it deeply enough. Like I get like broad strokes. I get some of the behavioral econ pieces, but I wouldn't be able to like draw the relationship graph on a whiteboard and be like, Hey, if this moves, then that moves. And we read end of Ed, well, end the fed last year, but that was kind of a rant. Not really. You know. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, I think to your point about like being able to buy food, that is basically what it comes down to. It's like food shelter and like, necessities and there's huge percentages of the u.s population that basically get that paid for by the government and mm -hmm. if that didn't if that got cut or didn't exist or didn't cover enough like if snap didn't go up at the pace mm -hmm. of inflation or the official rate of inflation was like way lower than actual inflation which totally i could see that happening too where it's like oh inflation's eight percent officially but like in real life it's like 70 percent or something you know or 50 percent or whatever because they've manipulated the numbers. Yeah. Like that could lead to your point of like more widespread uh, violence. It does kind of feel like the US is a startup that keeps assuming it can grow its way out of its problems. <laughs> and well, sometimes yeah. you get away with that. Yeah. Right. Like sometimes you, you know, sometimes you pull a Facebook and you eventually turn or an Amazon, you eventually turn on that profitability switch and like, everything goes okay but most companies who play Although that with, game die i was gonna say with amazon it's basically aws that rescued them so maybe our, like, what is our they make, AWS? they make more off of ads than aws now oh ads as well yes that's yeah, true that, yeah they just but aws is kind of what, AWS is what got them there yeah yeah you're totally right yes, about that yeah but, so i'm wondering what's like america's aws that leads us into ads dude it's <laughs> it's uh gpt and floating rocks that's what's gonna save us <laughs> maybe Honestly, it could I, be so. Like, it, I'm, it maybe I'm like only like thirty percent joking, leap. right? If if this yeah. is actually the biggest like material science discovery of our lifetimes, yeah. like it actually could, and combine that with like decent AI tooling, like that is actually a potential step order increase in productivity on par with like industrial revolution, computing technology, like any of those previous leaps. Like that was one of my first thoughts when I started digging into this like crazy superconductor stuff. I was like, ah, 
we're, we're going to get away with it again. <laughs> like this is not yeah. a healthy trend to continue, but well, we'll see how well this episode ages. Cause we may come back next week and be like, none of the experiments replicated. <laughs> I, yeah, I know. I, I saw somebody, I saw somebody who tweeted, he was like, he was like, Hey guys, I'm 48 and cold fusion has been discovered five times in my lifetime. <laughs> like don't get too excited. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's <laughs> probably a good perspective to have. All right. Well, speaking of next week, what's the next book? The I think we're doing I'm, I'm the creative act by Rick Rubin next. <laughs> uh, All right. If you actually want to learn about these books, just go to Matt's notes. I'm not even doing one on the creative act. <laughs> now you are. Okay. Watch his short I guess I video. Have to now. Yeah. Instagram. Watch my YouTube video on it. Uh, <laughs> so funny. <laughs> Um, but yeah, into a new set of episodes because we're past 100. We're into yeah. triple digits. Triple digits. Triple digits. So yeah, we'll do Upanishads next. And then do we know what we're doing after that? No, but we wanted to do another Explorer episode. Oh, uh, yeah. I had suggested The Right Stuff by Tom Wolfe about the NASA test pilots in the 50s, I think. Ooh. Oh, that sounds cool. Yeah. That sounds good. I'm in. All so right. that's 102. But yeah, we appreciate everybody for listening the last 100 episodes. If you're still with us from episode one, appreciate you. You have an NFT waiting for you. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but keep leaving reviews if you haven't already. I saw we have more on Spotify. I forget the exact number, but people keep leaving reviews. We appreciate it. Well, uh, it's nice on Spotify. You can just leave a star review. You don't have to exactly. write something out Mm. so yeah they've kind of taken Uh, an interesting balance of like as long as you've listened to the episode so they don't let you just go to a page and just leave a review but if you've listened to it on spotify it's just a one-click review which is kind of nice it's nice that's nice that's nice. But yeah, send uh, maybe don't send this episode to a friend who you think might enjoy the show. Send one where we actually talk about the book. <laughs> send the river of doubt. Send the river of doubt. Send the river of doubt. That was a good one. Yeah, yeah. And then send them after they've listened to like five. I feel like this episode will make more sense. Like this is like a exactly. deep cuts type episode. Should we should we just title this one the creative act parentheses kind of? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I like that. That's a great title. Oh. It's actually kind of appropriate that this is what we did for episode 100, or we mostly exactly. goofed off. <laughs> exactly. Also, this is a great book for doing that too. Like we got covered the few concepts, and you know, yeah. it's either like this book is either like infinite concepts or zero concepts or somewhere in the middle. So. Yeah. <laughs> another another one of my like book talkie friends, uh, Will Dozier, had this good thing on his Instagram where he was like. This is actually the best as a coffee table book. Hmm. Like, you know, I can see pick that. it up when you're like in the middle of a creative project or if you feel a little bit stuck or something and just flip to a random chapter and see how it helps you, which made me... And he said that I was like, oh, that's right. That's a really good way to use the book. And I would love an illustrated expanded edition with photographs from Ruben's career working with different artists. Like, that would be really cool. That would be yeah, a great coffee table cool. book. Yeah, that would actually be... <clears throat> Just really nice to yeah. have. Yeah. Totally. So if anybody knows Neil Strauss, hit him up and let him know. <laughs> or Rick Rubin. Let's make it happen. <laughs> yeah. All right. We'll see you guys next week. See you guys next time. See you in a week.